You might be wondering, why is he so swift to get out of his seat to come and uh, help us to understand a passage that's as heavy as that, perhaps as complex and um, confusing? What is all that about? Uh, Maybe this last couple of weeks, particularly last week and this week, it might feel like you're being given a really, really big plate of food every week. Um, Just there's a lot in these passages. Um, They seem very heavy. You know when you've had a really big beef steak or a big casserole and you feel very heavy and you've had too much pudding. Sometimes bits of Isaiah feel a bit like that. But strangely, if you were to come to this passage and, and treat it very lightly, as if it was a light snack, when it's not at all, we're not doing justice to what God wants to say. Um, to encourage you, next week, um, before we carry on in um, Isaiah, I think Wellesley's going to take us on into chapter 60. We're going to jump back into chapter 58, and it's going to be a very different feel. We're going to do something a bit more thematic, looking at the issue of social justice. How can we serve people in our communities um, who are broken? Um, how can we get involved in the political world and, and things like that? So it's a very different feel next week, and that's what it's going to be. But this, I, again, rather like last week, is like having a very big steak. Um, If you like steak, that's great. If you like salad, then bad luck. Um, But this is the passage. So let's pray. As we've just been singing, let's really pray that God would open up our hearts to hear his word, that he unblock our ears, that he open our eyes. And let's pray together. Father, my prayer this morning is just what we have sung, that you would help us to meet you in your word. Please, would you open our eyes to see what this passage has to say to each of us today. Please, would you open our hearts to respond. And may this challenge us, but may it encourage us too as we look forward to the week ahead. Amen. I'm going to do a little bit of a recap for you because the last few weeks people have been away. And this is kind of where we've been the last uh, three weeks in this introductory series in the the back-end chapters of Isaiah. First week was really about understanding. Uh, If you can cast your mind back, it was all about how does God know his greatness? How is he interested in knowing you and me? understanding that Uh, the second week was more a sense of conviction are you convicted that you have a need for God and I gave this illustration I keep repeating it God is Lord good things are good things but if I make good thing God God just becomes a good thing idols we were were looking at that together last week was more a sense of belief Uh, it was a promise to those who will humble themselves who will come before God the promise that God will forgive those who put their trust in him And you remember those lovely words uh, we looked at in chapter 58. You will call and the Lord will answer. And that other verse we looked at at the end. You will find your joy in the Lord. Uh, Someone this week said to me that a friend had texted him an encouraging text. And the text simply said this. When you come to God, God will never say to you, go away. That's lovely, isn't it? It's more than lovely. It's profoundly important god will never say to you go away i'm busy or i'm not interested and uh, that's really important to us today because we're coming to chapter 59 and it gets to a chapter where god's people cry out to god in total desperation so really this this week this chapter is all about are we going to respond have we responded do we want to respond to all that god has said in previous weeks um, think about um, American movies, they're normally always American, big disaster movies, um, where there's a volcano that's about to erupt, there's um, a tsunami that's about to hit um, a country, um, there's an enemy, alien invasion, something like this. Big, big films like this, you always see those scenes, don't you, where people are running away from a danger when the threat comes, and they're running away, and there's all the emotions scream, and there's normally a, a very beautiful lady who needs rescuing, and a hunky man who's going to rescue her, you know the sort of thing. But outwardly, you see these disasters 
And it makes sense why people are screaming, they're crying out for relief. Contrast all of that with uh, perhaps an illness inside a person you can't see. And when I was a school teacher, there was a girl who, this time, how many years ago it was, was about to see her A-levels. On the Tuesday evening, beautiful sunshine, she was playing tennis at school. On the Wednesday at breakfast, she was dead. Meningitis. Something was going on in her that she couldn't see, nobody could see, and just like that, her life was taken from her. An equally devastating disaster. But the thing is, you look at the American films and you see people running from something external that looks like a threat. It makes sense. They're screaming, they're crying for help. But we often don't see things that are hidden inside, and so we don't cry out for help. Well, I want us to see how this passage today helps us to look inside our hearts. Not something we naturally want to do, but to show us the problem we've got in our hearts, that actually we're in just as great a danger as the people on the films who are running away from an erupting volcano. But there's a problem inside that we don't see, and therefore we don't worry about it. And I want us to see how the gospel responds. The first way the gospel responds is that God reveals himself to us in the mess and brokenness of our world. You'll know that beginning in John's gospel, the word, Jesus Christ, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God has entered time and space. He's entered the mess of our world because he's passionate about knowing you. This is what I was showing us from that first Isaiah passage. If you look at our passage this morning, look at something that's revealed about God. It's an amazing truth. Isaiah 59 verse 1 says this, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. I just want to illustrate this. I've asked Martin, if you can just stand up, I want you to reach up your hand. Samuel, if you can just lean over the balcony... I haven't done a risk assessment, so if you're into risk assessments, you need to apologise. I want you to reach down and take hold of Martin, because Martin is surrounded by crocodiles, and he's about to be eaten. You need to reach. Come on. Martin is dying. Okay, we can stop there. That's great. There's a tiny gap there, and yet Samuel can't save Martin from the crocodiles, okay? Silly illustration. But, But think about God the first week, and I gave us those stats. Remember... Our Milky Way galaxy is 100,000 light years across, and light travels at 186,000 miles every second. That's the extent of how big God is. That's just our Milky Way in the whole universe. Uh, Scientists reckon, I remember I gave you this stat, scientists reckon if you counted every star, one every second, all day, all night, for 2,500 years, you still wouldn't have counted every star in our galaxy. Well, somewhere else in the Bible it talks about God calling and placing every star in the, in the Milky Way, in our galaxy. His hand is not too short to rescue because his hand was able to place stars 100,000 light years apart. That is staggering, isn't it? So when here you read Isaiah declares the arm of the Lord is not, not too short to save. His ear is not too dull to hear. That is really important. That is really important. So the gospel reveals something to, of God to us, but interestingly, this is something we don't dwell on as much. The gospel also reveals us to us. I showed us last week in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul talks about God giving us over to a depraved mind. If we turn our back on him, it doesn't affect what we do, it affects the way we think. So we can't think clearly, we can't see clearly. I want to illustrate that. Here's a mirror. Now if I held up this mirror and you look in it, you might like what you see, you might not like what you see. But that is largely what you look like. Now, you could look in the mirror and you could describe what you see. 
But you may not be very objective because you may think you're really ugly, but you're not. And what you see in here is something you don't like, but the reality is that you're not ugly. You might think that you're brilliant and perfect and never done anything wrong, but actually that's not the truth. Now, you can look in the mirror. You could also say to a friend, can you tell me what they see in the mirror? And the friend could speak into you and say, as you look in the mirror, this is what you're like. Perhaps they could be a little bit more objective about what you're like. But they're not able to be perfectly objective. The, the point is, neither you nor God can be completely objective about... Sorry, neither you nor other people can be completely objective about what you see in the mirror. But imagine God then joins you and stands by this mirror too and says, let me tell you what's in that mirror. Not just what's in the mirror outwardly, but says, and let me tell you what's on the inside as well. Only God can do that because he sees everything. It's completely different, isn't it? And look what the passage says he sees when he looks into each of our hearts. Verse 2, your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And then verse 3, it talks about hands, fingers, lips, tongues, different parts of our body that are implicated have done things wrong. What he's trying to say is, look, the whole person is implicated here. The whole being of who you are has turned their back on God. You know that word separated in verse 2? It's only used one other place in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 6, where God separates the expanses from one another, the sky from the sea. You think about the sky and the sea. They're completely separate, aren't they? Here's sky, it stops, and the sea starts and carries on. I can fly in the sky, I can't fly in the sea. I can float in the sea, I can't float in the sky. They're different, completely separate. Well, the writer's using exactly the same word to describe the way that we've been separated from God. It's it's a complete separation. Because we've all said to him, I don't want you in my life. See, the gospel doesn't just reveal God to us, it reveals us to us. And it's a hard thing to hear, isn't it? And it goes on in verse 4. Uh, they conceive trouble and give birth to evil. What, what the writer is saying is every new generation of human being brings more trouble into the world. N- not that every person is completely terrible and that we only do bad things, but everything about us is broken in different ways. Uh, if you have a newborn child, you don't need to teach a child to misbehave. Have you ever thought about why? It's not because you're a bad parent. It's not because they're terrible. It's because they're born into a broken world and the brokenness that first hit Adam hits every newborn child as well. You're not born perfect and then you muck up. You're born with a mess in your heart. And what Isaiah does is he paints two pictures of what this looks like, and they're quite striking. Do you see in verse 5? They hatch the eggs of vipers and spin a spider's web. Think about vipers for a moment. That egg there, very innocent, isn't it? You might eat one for breakfast. You might see one in a a garden if you've got chickens. An egg is full of potential. It looks very innocent. But there's something deadly inside which grows up to be something that can kill you. That's the illustration he's giving. Something that looks so innocent, so harmful on the outside. Inside, there's something deadly. Uh, He gives you another illustration. uh, The spider's web. You look at a spider's web, it's beautiful, isn't it? Particularly when the dew's on it in the morning, when the ice settles on it. It looks absolutely beautiful, but it's a trap. Now, Isaiah could be speaking of a lot of things, but think about things in your life that look so innocent, so beautiful, but actually they're a trap. I think for a lot of us in this part of the world, it's wealth. 
it can be so innocent surrounding ourselves with X, Y, and Z. It's not going to do any harm. But what does it ultimately do? It traps us, it ensnares us. It takes our eyes off God. And something that looks so innocent can actually be something that's very, very significant. We can surround ourselves outwardly with wealth and security. But inwardly, these things can kill us. And it goes on, verse 7. We end up becoming numb to our sin. We, we, we become so familiar with these things that we live for that aren't God that we end up not feeling it anymore. So we end up rushing into sin, swift to shed innocent blood. They're all metaphors for our life, rushing to do all that displeases God. And we become so numb that we don't even realize we're doing it. Now just pause at this moment. Notice two things. The first thing is, it's not that God's justice and righteousness cannot reach us. Those two there couldn't reach each other. Their hands were too short. But God's hands can reach through the whole universe. So it's not that his hands can't reach you. It's not that you've gone too far. It's that there's been this sense of separation, just like the air from the sea, that's so complete that we can't know God. But it's because we have turned our back on him, not because his arm can't reach far enough. Notice the second thing. This isn't a prophet standing at a distance in isolation, hurling these bombs of condemnation on his people. Sort your life out. This is a prophet standing with his people saying, I'm part of the problem too. And I very much sense that as I come to help us understand this passage. I don't stand here tossing bombs and saying, look at the mess of your life. I say, look at the mess of our lives. I'm in it too. And then if you notice in the passage, it's very subtle. Verses 1 to 8, it was all about they, they this, they that. But later, verse 9 onwards becomes we or us. The prophet knows that he's standing here with God's people and he's part of the problem too. And I very much sense that I'm part of the problem of our broken world, just like each of us are. Um, a number of years ago I went caving. I don't know if you've ever been caving. Uh, you can go down deep under the ground. Now, you go caving often during the day, so it's bright sunshine, but within a few feet, once you go underground, it becomes completely dark. It is daytime, it is light, but it feels very dark because you're underground. And you can't even see your hand in front of your face. And I don't like it. I'm actually quite claustrophobic. Um, I'm up for an adventure and I always still go caving, but I don't really enjoy it. When it's light outside, under in a cave, it's very, very dark. And what Isaiah says here is that though there is light in the world, though we can know what is true and good, it's like we descend into a cave, into the darkness, and so we can't see the light anymore. And you see, at uh, end of verse 9, we look for light, but all is darkness. We look for brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. What he's just saying is we don't really see ourselves as we truly are anymore. And, and this is really a picture of the collective moral failure. Individually we turn our back on God, but collectively we're in the same boat together. Verse 10, we are like the blind who grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. See, we have eyes, I can see, but spiritually speaking I can't see. It's as if I were blind. At midday we stumble as if it were twilight. It is daytime, but sometimes it feels like I'm in the depths of a cave. Why is that? Have a look down to verse 5. Truth is nowhere to be found. And we're living in a culture now where increasingly people are thinking that it's reasonable to suggest there's no such thing as truth. It's called relativism. Everything is relative. There's a truth for you, a truth for me, but there's not a truth for all of us. And we believe this and we get sucked in that truth is this ever-elusive thing that doesn't actually exist. 
And you hear people all the time talking like this, but they haven't really woken up. And perhaps this is you, and I want to challenge you. Have you really woken up? Because I'll tell you why. If a person dies who's close to you, you will feel that pain. When you see injustice in the world, you cry out, that's not right. But if everything's just relative, you've got no reason to really cry out because you're experiencing pain, well, that's just your lot. I'm experiencing joy, that's my lot. But there's no such thing as truth. But the fact that people cry out against what is not right proves that there is right and wrong. There is truth and there is lies. But relativists, people who claim that there's no truth, haven't really understood that. Just think about the way that our culture is changing. Um, Recently, the redefinition of marriage in this country has changed thousands of years of history. It's hugely significant, far more significant than actually we like to think. And you'd have seen that the Irish constitutional referendum a few days ago on the 22nd of May, 62% people voted in favour of gay marriage. It's not something that honours God, because he created the world with a created order that's different to that. It's not talking about the way that we love and embrace people who have different sexualities to us. It's talking about what honours God. And gay marriage doesn't honour God. It's a difficult truth. But it's a reality. But the Bible is being undermined all the time. And ethical issues, I think, are the next ones that are going to hit the political scene in a very public way. The Bible is being undermined. And the, the thing that really breaks my heart, and I see that I'm still part of the problem, is that our culture doesn't seem that bothered. It just doesn't. It's like, why are you Christians getting worked up about this stuff? Just get with the times. And here's the reality. If you speak up against these landslips and these changes, what happens? Look at the second half of verse 5. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes prey. I spoke to one of you on Sunday evening last week, and you were describing what it's like for you in the office in London when you stand up against some of these things, when you speak out against them, however graciously, The person said they felt like an idiot. They felt this small. Isaiah describes exactly that feeling. And I think in our culture, if you're going to stand for Jesus, he's going to be Lord of everything. It's going to really, really cost you. Particularly in the next 20 years. If you look at the trajectory of where we're going as a culture, it's going to really cost you. And it's important if you're a Christian, you count the cost. Because you can't just be a Christian and go along with it and think it's okay. Have a look at this quote from C.S. Lewis. It's quite a famous quote. I just want to read it for those who listen online or perhaps a recording. It says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I think that diagnoses our culture. When people don't know that Jesus is Lord, don't know the joy of giving their life to him, of course you're going to live for something that's not God, because you don't know any better, and I'd do exactly the same. Were it not for the grace of God opening my eyes and my heart that I can see that there's something better. I don't have to keep on making mud pies in a slum, because there is a holiday at the seaside. But here's the thing, it may not bother our culture, And perhaps it doesn't bother us. And if it does, maybe it doesn't bother us as much as it should. But the amazing truth is where there's hope for us. It does bother God. Have a look at the end of verse 15. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. 
Do you remember last week, um, chapter 58, verse 9, we called and the Lord answered. This week we see, not only does God hear, but he also sees. You've probably been watching on the news in Nepal and the devastating earthquake and all that's been happening. It's terrible news. Well, if you've seen pictures of a person, a small child perhaps, buried under meters of rubble, they're crying out, aren't they? Help! And they get first sense of relief when they hear the voices of rescue workers or they hear the barks of a sniffer dog coming. They hear the cry, they hear the rescuers. But how much more relief will that buried person feel when they see the rescuer and they see that they can actually get out? Well, last week, God hears our cry. This week, he actually sees. And what does it say? When he's appalled at the situation we're in, he doesn't just say, well... That's life. He says, verse 16, second half, so his own arm achieved salvation for him. His own arm achieved salvation for him. And verse 17 tells us how. And these words might be familiar. Do they ring any bells? Ephesians chapter 6. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. What is being pictured here is God putting on the armour of a warrior. It's a picture of Jesus Christ clothing himself for battle. Not a physical battle, but a spiritual one. A spiritual battle that would take him to the cross. And what we get in the coming verses is a picture of judgment and of deliverance. It's hard, isn't it? Look at verse 18. According to what they have done so he will repay wrath to his enemies. How's that possible? It's possible because God sees everything. He sees the hiddenness in our own hearts. He sees the hiddenness in everybody's hearts. And because he sees everything, and he sees objectively, not like when you or I look in the mirror, he's able to tell us what we're really like. He sees. And it says here, verse 19, from the west people will fear his name, and from the rising of the sun they will revere his glory. East and West, as far separate as it's possible to be. Everybody between East and West will revere God's glory. There's that beautiful verse, isn't there, in the book of Romans. One day every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's the truth. One day everyone will see that good things that they've lived for, that aren't God, that it's madness. Because there's something so much better. And when God comes in judgment, there's no hiding place. But remember last week, his anger isn't like my anger having a rant at the techie team because the the stuff hasn't come up on the screen. It was all an illustration. That's not how God gets angry. His anger is measured. His anger is controlled. He has a right reason to be angry because he's God. And he's the only one who sees objectively what our hearts are like and he has to punish it. And we'd want him to punish it because we don't want to live in a world that's broken. God will repay the wrath of his enemies. But look at the hope, verse 20. The Redeemer will come to Zion. Zion's another name for Jerusalem, representative of God's people. Wrath to his enemies. A Redeemer, though, comes to his people. Now, here's a puzzle. You read verses 1 to 8 in our passage. It's talking about the enemies of God and God's people. We're all lumped in together. So how come, then, in these verses, some face the wrath of God and some see their Redeemer? And it brings them joy. If we're all in it together, if all of our hearts have turned away from God. 
The answer isn't because some people are more lovable, because some people have figured out the truth. The answer, you see, comes in verse 20. Those who repent of their sins. There's a beautiful picture that's painted in Luke chapter 15 of three things that are lost. A lost son, a lost coin, and a lost sheep. And the second of those stories is the lost sheep. And when the sheep is lost, the story is told of a hundred sheep. And when the shepherd loses one, he leaves 99 and he goes after the one. Not because the 99 aren't important, but because the one is so precious. And he goes after the one. And it says at the end, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. That is an amazing truth. And this word repent, it's not saying sorry. It's that, but it's so much more. The word repent is something that goes right into our hearts. It's it's about a, a change of attitude. The language of the New Testament is sort of put off, put on. Come to Christ, turn away from our sin. And what repentance does, and it comes back to where we started, repentance is about understanding who God is, but also understanding who I am. And when I understand who I am and how broken I am and how much I need God, I desperately want him. And this passage says that I can have him. I'll show you four pictures that help illustrate how we can know God. This really is an illustration of repentance. It starts with brokenness. Not just, I'm sorry, I won't do it again, knowing that you probably will. It's a total brokenness where we come before God and right in my heart I realize I'm convicted Not just told something, but I'm convicted in here that I desperately need to turn back to God. And that without him I have absolutely no hope. That kind of brokenness is a brokenness that's good for all of us. But without it, we haven't truly repented. We've just said sorry and probably not meant it. After repentance comes coming to Jesus, coming to the cross, the one who's gone into battle before us, who's hung on a cross. Remember last week, He called out on the cross and the Lord didn't hear his voice. So that when you cry out, he will hear your voice. Jesus punished so that you don't have to be. Brokenness, then coming to the cross and realizing that Jesus is the only answer. Then you get the U-turn. That's what repentance is. Not just whispering over my shoulder, I'm sorry, but a complete turnaround in my life. Wanting to put the Lord first. But it's not all kind of heavy, There is a sense of heaviness in repentance, but there's also great joy. Because when I give my life to Jesus, when I say, I don't want to live for me anymore, there's a sense of relief. The burden's been taken away. I'm free to know God again. I'm free to enjoy him. And every time I muck up and continue to muck up, and I will, it doesn't weigh me down. Because he's taken the burden from me. Those pictures really illustrate repentance. And if you're a person who has repented but hasn't understood what that's meant or maybe you sit here and you think I'm actually feeling really convicted and I need to do that for myself there's an amazing promise which we'll close with which comes at the end of the passage this is a kind of commitment of divine um, it's a divine commitment God says as for me this is my covenant with them says the Lord my spirit who is on you will not depart from you it's a picture of assurance isn't it If you put your trust in Jesus, God in his spirit comes to live in you and he will not depart from you. Secondly, my words I put in my mouth will always be on your lips. It's a picture of guidance, isn't it? God leading us forward. 
And then the final one, from this time on and forever. It's a picture of God sustaining us. And when we give our lives to Jesus, when we truly repent, he comes to live in us by his spirit and gives us a sense of assurance. We belong to him. He guides us forward and he sustains us that we can keep living and serving him. And do you notice in that one verse, you get God in his fullness, the Trinity of God, Father, Son and Spirit at work in your rescue. God the Father has expressed his commitment to you when you could have given up a long time ago. God the Son has demonstrated his work for you. It was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. And God the Holy Spirit, his presence is in you if you've put your trust in him. And friends, when the gospel truly captures your heart, it's because you've not only understood who God is, but you've understood who you are. And you've realized that there is this separation, but you've also come to realize there's a way back to God. The source of all joy, the source of all peace, the source of all love. Now maybe there's someone here for the first time who's never ever given your life to Jesus. And you may be thinking, I've got a hundred questions. Well, we've all got hundreds of questions. But you really feel God could say to you today, will you trust me? And I want to pray a prayer that perhaps you could pray in your heart. And God will hear. Remember how I started? God will never say, go away. But also repentance, not only is a once for all thing, I, I repent, I give my life to Jesus, I become a Christian. Repentance is also an ongoing thing. And it may be for each of us, I hope for each of us, there's something in our life that we need to say sorry for. Something hidden that nobody else sees. An attitude that I'm not prepared to let go of. And it may be that God is just laying on your heart while that is and you need to say sorry. And I know there are things in my life that I need to say sorry for. So I'm just going to put up on the screen the prayer that I want to pray. I just want you to read it really quietly. Uh, the music group is going to come up because they're going to play in a moment. And once you've had a chance to read that and to reflect on it, I'm just going to pray it through. And if you believe that that is true for you, you could just echo that in your heart. And God hears i just going to ask if um, Liz, perhaps you could just play this, the song that we're going to sing in a moment, just through really quietly. And as we listen to the music that we're shortly going to sing of, I'm going to pray this prayer. And if you feel you can echo it in your heart, be assured that God will hear. And be assured that he will answer. Shall we pray together? God, I recognize today that you are Lord and I'm not. You created me, you love me, and you made me for a relationship with you. I'm sorry that I've turned my back on you. I'm sorry I've lived my life selfishly with me at the center. I recognize I deserve your just punishment and that left to myself I have no hope but thank you for sending Jesus Christ into the world thank you that you have achieved salvation through his death on the cross in my place thank you that he was punished so that I can be forgiven 
I turn from my sin today and want to live from now on with Jesus Christ as my Lord. Help me to let go of attitudes and behaviours that do not please you. Please change my heart. Thank you that you've demonstrated your commitment to me. Thank you that you've paid the penalty for me. Thank you that you promised to never leave me. I trust my life and my death into your hands now. Amen. I'm going to sing one more song to close. I just want to encourage you, if you really feel that God's laid in your heart something that you want to turn from and turn back to God, don't just rush off after this song, but I encourage you to stay here just to spend time with other people. There's always a group of uh, people in the corner here who'll pray with you, and that might be the thing that you really need to do, just to pray with someone and make your commitment in your heart real with somebody else. And you can feel vulnerable because we love each other and we care for each other, so we don't need to feel ashamed. But if you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus, and maybe for the first time you prayed that prayer, it'd be great for you to tell somebody, because you can't go on in the Christian life on your own. It's impossible. But we're here together. So again, come and share with someone who's praying. Come and speak to myself or Neil. Uh, We'd love to hear. And if maybe you haven't prayed that prayer, but you have a burden that you want to, come and share as well, and we can encourage you. Um, But let me close in prayer, and then we'll just sing our final song um, and then carry on here. But I'm going to pray the words of that last song, and then we'll sing the song, I Will Glory in My Redeemer. It's a great song that says, if this is true, I will give glory to him because he has redeemed me. And the Redeemer was a a name that came up in the passage we've looked at. So let me pray to close the service and then we will sing together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for saving me. I thank you for saving so many in this room. Not because there's something within ourselves that is lovable. Though we are made in your image and there's much that is good. We thank you that you saved us because you are a gracious God. And we want to give you praise and thanks because we don't deserve your love and yet your love goes deeper than our sin. We thank you, Father, for that illustration, that passage that we looked at, that your arm is not too short to save and that that separation that you have with us has been made right through the death of your son, Jesus, that a bridge has been built that enables us to know you. And I pray that we would leave here as a repentant people And I particularly pray for anybody who's here who perhaps for the first time has asked you to forgive them, that they would be assured of your presence with them by your spirit, they'd be assured of your love, that your words would go on and guide them to keep listening to your voice, and that they would know that you will sustain them now and forevermore. So Father, we do glory in our Redeemer. May we sing this song now in praise of your great name. Amen.